0: Today's reading will be from 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 1 through 26, as well as chapter 23, verse 24 to 27. If you're reading from the Blue Q Bible, you can find today's reading on page 328, 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 1 through 26. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal, and made Asherah and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. And he put altars of all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon and his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, And the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations, has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hands of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day." Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides the sin, he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, and all that he did, and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the king of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers, and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Emon his son reigned in his place. Amon was twenty-two years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Perez of Jotba, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked, and served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Amon conspired against him and put the king to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Amon, and the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. Now the acts of Ammon that he, uh, and the acts of Amon that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. And now to the second reading, 2 Kings chapter 23, 24 to 27. And this is on page 330. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah, the priest, found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him, Who turned the Lord with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will move Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel." And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Please be seated.
1: All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Um, We are starting a new series this week titled The Justification of God, uh, specifically uh, the Theodicy and Habakkuk. And, um, but you're like, wait, we didn't read Habakkuk, but... Uh, we're going to look at kind of the background of Habakkuk. Um, now, you might be wondering, uh, what does the Odyssey mean? Um, I had looked that up myself. Uh, the Odyssey, it's, it's this idea of trying to defend God in light of evil or suffering in the world. Um, we usually hear questions um, kind of like if God is so loving, if He's so powerful, why does God allow suffering or why is there suffering in this world? And sometimes this question, um, it actually leads to a disbelief in God. Uh, some, some people have this thought process of, well, since they're suffering, uh, and then an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving God would not exist. Um, or maybe there's some people who might believe that there is a God, uh, but the idea of a God who allows these problems, or who, are, who, are, who would allow these things, um, maybe that's not a God who's worthy to be worshipped. Uh, maybe to them, the God is not worthy to give up their lives for. Um, so, but whatever whatever questions someone might have against God, uh, the heart behind a questioner is this belief uh, that uh, is this is belief that God isn't good. the The heart behind a person who asks these questions is really a belief that God's his his actions are not loving, or maybe his actions aren't acceptable at least acceptable to us. And so The Odyssey is this idea of like just trying to think about God in a way where he, where he is justified in his actions in this world, uh, where his actions are justified uh, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of evil. And I do really want to say, I do want to say real quick that, you know, God doesn't need to be justified in his actions. He doesn't need to justify himself. I remember one time, the, I think it was during a storm, uh, one of the storms here uh, around this area, and a the fire alarm was going off, and um, I, I came over here to check on it, uh, to um, and then the fire truck was here, and then so the fire fire people they were like, hey, we had to break down some doors because um, there were some doors that were locked, but the alarms were going off, the sensors were going off in there, and but he, but the thing was, the fire guy, the, the fireman, he was like hey, like he was just trying to like justify his actions. He was like, hey, like, you know, I, we really had to get in there. The sensor was going off and you wouldn't want us to not go in and check in. And to, to me, I was like, dude, if there's 10 locked doors or 10 sensors inside, break them all down. You don't have to justify your actions to me. Like, Break down walls, do whatever you do to check in and see if there's a fire. Like he didn't really have to be apologetic and you know, justify his actions. And so for me, I, I feel like God doesn't need to justify his actions like this guy. But the thing is, God, he deals with sinners. God, he he deals with us who, who complains all the time. Uh, And that's kind of what's going on in the book of Habakkuk, and you'll you'll get into that later on. But in the book of Habakkuk, uh, he asks all these questions. If anything, there are all these complaints about God. Why are you doing this? Why is this happening? Why is there suffering? Why is there evil? Why, 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 why? And it's this idea of we don't really trust you, God. There's these uh, complaints about him. And so that's kind of what's going on, though, in the book of Habakkuk. There's all these, there's the crisis that kind of led to the fall of Jerusalem. There's destruction of the temple. And there was the the deportation of all the people. And then there was just kind of the, the righteous, they were being abused. And so, of course, so naturally, naturally, there's these complaints will come out. Naturally, these questions will come out. And I'm not trying to say, hey, if you, ask, if you have these questions or if you doubt God that you're wrong in here. I'm not saying that you shouldn't doubt. I'm not saying you shouldn't ask these questions. But that's just kind of what's going on. Is that, you know, God wants to help us think through these questions. God wants to help us think through what's going on and think through our complaints and think through our doubts. So, Habakkuk. He was complaining about to God about what was happening. But before we get to the book of Habakkuk, you know, Pastor Jason, he will preach on this next week. Uh, we're going to look at kind of the events that sparked the events of Habakkuk. Uh, we're going to from uh, from the from what we just heard in in First Second Kings and Second Kings. Um, it will help us to put in perspective kind of what God, kind of God's actions and what was going on, and hopefully, in turn. It'll help us to see and understand and really justify God's actions and what He's done. So, from today's passages, you'll see from the outline three things: God judges all sin; He is patient. Second one: God is patient and is dealing with sin. And the last one that He delivers us um, through a better King. And so that's what we're going to do. God judges all sin. And that's the first one. And so, when we look at this, if you if you if you kind of read along in Second in Kings, you saw that. Manasseh, he was not a really good king at all. If any, he was an evil king. Um, the author, he actually contrast—he contrasts Manasseh with uh, the reign of Hezekiah, which is his father. And then he contrasts it with, his, um, uh, with the reign of Josiah, his, gr- his grandson. And so part of that is he had these two good kings. And right in the middle is Manasseh, who was super evil. And so that's kind of what the author was trying to do here. And in verse 2, if you look at the progression of this, in verse 2 of chapter 21, verse 2, if you look at it, if you look at it, he says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations. But then he follows up in verse 10. So in verse 2, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But in verse 10, it says, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than the Amorites did. So not only did he do evil, but he did was worse than the nations. He did more evil than them. We also learned at Manasseh, he, he undoes the work that his father did. So he, he places uh, idols, worship, he places the idol worship in, the, the, the uh, sorry, he, he built up the, the idol worship that his father tore down, and he builds them back up. He restores idol worships in the land. So not only does he restore the worship of idols in the land, but actually he, he places the idols right in the middle of God's house. I don't know if you guys remember this. Um, when Doc Rivers became the, the head coach of the Clippers a long time ago, um, if, you, if you know this, um, if you know the Clippers and the Lakers, they shared the Staples Center. And, you know, if you know the history of the, the L.A. Lakers, they have a lot of championships, right? Um, they have... Uh, a lot of jerseys that retired, think like Magic Johnson and um, all those people. Think about that. And so you think about if you go into Staples Center, you'll see all the banners. You see everything up there, the championships banners and all that. So the first thing Doc Rivers does is, he, he, as he becomes coach of the Clippers, he goes, I want that all to be covered up. I want them to not be seen. I went, when it's a Clippers home game, it needs to be the Clippers house, right? He doesn't want this to be the Clippers house with the Lakers banners out there. And so that's what was going on. He was saying, let's cover that up. I don't want this in here. And so the same thing, though, well, the opposite happens here. Manasseh, he does the exact opposite. He goes, you know what? This is God's house. I don't care. I'm going to put idols right in the middle of this place. Not only one or two, but you know, multiple courts. And he's just going to put them there. And there's idols right in the middle of his house. So it's obvious to see that Manasseh was this evil king. One of the worst ones. One of the worst kings. He directly defies God in his actions. I mean, I won't go over through a lot of what he has said or a what, what, lot of what he's done. But, what, but a lot of what he did was in direct um, defiance about God. I mean, think about the two-year-old, Astrid, uh, who you tell her not to do something. And yet, she looks straight at you in your eye while she does what you tell her not to do. Two-year-old, come on. Like, like. Don't touch that eh, and you touch it, right? Look straight at you, defiance, straight defiance. Manasseh, this two year old king, right? Knew, he was 12, but, um, um, well, 22 when he started to reign by himself, but still. But Manasseh, straight defiance against a God and his word. And that's what happens. But even then, but even, even what Manasseh does is he, in First uh, Kings 21 and verse 11, if you look at that, he says, Manasseh has made Judah also to sin with his idols. And so he, not only does he sin himself, but his people sin. The land sin, the people, his, he makes them sin, he leads them into that. And so this is actually where we get the text for today's t- message. Uh, and following verse 11, and if, looking, if you look at verse 12, Verse 12 and 13, it says, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem, the measuring line of Samaria, and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So there's two things that are going on here. There's two things going on that, that in, this, in, in verses 12 and 13. The first thing that we see is that no one escapes this judgment. No one. The image he uses, this wiping of this dish clean, it, it, he uses this wiping a dish clean. And so, think about, it, it's a little bit difficult for us, to, you know, to think about because, you know, we have dishwashers today. Uh, if you use it more than a drying rack. Like, but if you have a dishwasher, the, the, the instructions say, scrape. But don't wipe like scrape, but don't wipe off the, you know, don't wipe off the, the foods, the oils. Just scrape off the pieces and then put the plates in. That's what you do if you have the dishwasher. But, but here, this picture is, no, 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 don't just scrape off the food and leave particles on there. No, 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 no. what's going to happen is, you know, I'm going to wipe this dish. I'm going to turn it upside down. I'm going to make sure it's clean. I'm going to wipe everything off. There's nothing left that is dirty on this dish. So that's the first thing we see, that no one escapes this judgment. But why? Why does no one escape this judgment? So the the second thing that we need to see from this passage is because just everyone in the land, everyone under Manasseh is just as evil as other nations. If you you read it, if you remember, you know, he says, I will stretch over Jerusalem, the measuring line of Samaria. And he says, the plumb line of the house of Ahab. So what he's saying here is everyone in the land, everyone under Manasseh is just as evil. You will receive the same judgment as everyone else who did evil. So no one escapes judgment. Why? Because you're just as evil as everyone else. You're just as bad. You're just as wicked as everyone else. So when God lays down judgment, when God lays down his judgment, he does not miss one act of evil. He doesn't let let anyone get a pass for any wrongdoings. So we're all in this. You and I, we're all in this judgment. We all will face this judgment. We have to understand. You and I have to understand. There's not this bell curve of good and bad people. There's not this bell curve of good people who's, some, there's some people who are really, really good over here. You know, there's like, you know, there's, there's some people that are really, really good, maybe Billy Graham, or maybe Hudson Taylor, or Jim Elliott, these missionaries, evangelists, or like Apostle Paul, who wrote like half of the New Testament, like there's some really good people over here, but then there's some really, really bad people over here, like, like I just you know, I just Googled really evil people, right? And then there's like a list of 15 people. It's like like Hitler, Saddam Hussein. And it's like, there's not this, and then here's the thing. There's not this bell curve of really good people and really evil. And then we're just all kind of, kind of good, kind of bad in the middle. There's not a bell curve of good and bad. It's not like we can't be like, oh, yeah, you know, we're not like Manasseh. We're not like Manasseh. We, you, you can't think like that, all right. And it's not saying like, so again, bell curve. Let's go back a little bit, right? Bell curve. Bell curve, good and bad. Good people, uh, you know, G- Jim Elliot. Bad people, Hitler. And then there's us in the middle. No, 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 no. right? And Manasseh's not over here, and, and you know, and we're over here. Brow curve. So, but here's the thing. Um, it's this idea that, you know. Maybe some of us are like, we're not, you know what, we don't have idols in our living rooms. No, and, and you know, there's not like, you know, no one's coming up here replacing a pulpit with their idols or anything like that. There's not, No, none of us are saying like, we you know, we're probably saying we're not like Manasseh. We're nowhere like him. But we assume, we assume we're not that bad. We assume we're not like Hitler. We're, we assume we're not like Manasseh in our life. One of the arguments against God being unjust and God being not fair is this belief that God is 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 uh, the belief that man is good enough, that man is good and God is wrong, and so when bad things happen to man, it's like man, that's that's not fair, man doesn't deserve it, God doesn't know what's best, we know what's best, and that's kind of this idea of what why we even think about theodicy. We don't like what God is doing and how he carries out his plan. He's a bad God and God is wrong. But the reality is, reality is this. God is not wrong. And the reality is that we have wronged God. You and I have wronged God. We may not have put physical altars, uh, uh, physical idols in, in, in the middle of the church. But we have wronged God in our lives. I mean, if I could project, if we could project everything you've thought about this week, if we could project your thoughts and your actions and things you looked at this week and the feelings that you had towards other people, if we could project what happened to you this week on the screen, what will we see? What idols will come up? Everyone has an idol. Every single person in here has an idol. We have wronged God. There's no bell curve of a good and evil. It's more of a, there's a column of bad people, and we're all in this, along with Manasseh. And there's a column of good people, and none of us are there. And I think sometimes, sometimes we think of Christianity, we think that maybe there's this mold I need to fit. Maybe there's this, we feel like, hey, there's this mold I need to fit. I need to look a certain way. I need to be good enough. I need to be spiritual. I need to be more spiritual. I need to climb this spiritual ladder. You got it. maybe sometimes you feel like, hey, I got to, I mean, I, I got to, you know, memorize a certain amount of scripture. I got to know enough scripture to be better, a better Christian. Maybe I need to use the right vocab and listen to the right podcast and maybe some of us feel like, hey, there's this mold, this Christianity I need to uh, you know, live up to. Maybe we still live under this idea of this bell curve. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of good, I'm kind of good, but I, I'm not always good. There's not a bell curve. If anything, we're all bad, we're all evil. And this is why God says, I I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. No one escapes, no one escapes the judgment because no one is good. No one seeks God, no one, but in our sinfulness, but, but in our sinfulness though, we see a heart we see a heart, God's heart for sinful people. And so I want us to keep going. And that's where we get to our second, pass, uh, second point. Even though there's no one good. Even though on the one hand, our sin, it angers God. Our sin, it provokes God to anger. Like it says in verse 6, if you read with me. He did much, Manasseh, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. This is God's disposition towards us as sinners. But we also see another way that God responds to sinners. If you look at uh, verse 15, look at chapter 21, verse 15. Chapter 21, verse 15. It says, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger, once again we hear that, since the day their fathers came out of Egypt. To Even to this day, this is the picture of God's patience towards evil and sinners. This is the picture of God's patience. God's people have done evil. They've wronged God for, at this point, 800 years or so. 800 years. Think about that. Generation after generation after generation after generation after generation. Uh, after 16 kings, that's not even counting the northern kings. 16 kings, eight, generation, generation, generation after generation after generation. In 800 years, God showed his mercy, shows his mercy to his people. But even at this point, even at this point, God doesn't execute his justice. He doesn't execute his judgment on Manasseh and the people. I mean, at this point, it's about 600 BC, 650 B.C., and the, exi- the exile, it doesn't even happen until maybe 586 B.C. So that's another 65 years or so. God is patient with his people. And even, in, in even uh, as you read in verses 17 through 18, Manasseh, he's buried with the other kings he, he, he has the proper uh, burial and honored as a king. He's buried with all the other kings. Just think about, you know, Queen Elizabeth. She was paraded around the land, and everyone came out to see him. And I'm sure Manasseh had that same kind of, kind of burial, kind of honor, and where, where he was kind of buried, even though he did all this wrong. God is patient. God is patient when, he is, when it comes to dealing with sin. He is patient when it comes to dealing with you and your sin. He's patient. He's not slow. He's not stuck. He's patient. He's merciful. The only thing that you and I have a right to is this hell-bound race. And I'm gonna read the. I'm gonna read this verse uh, from uh, from um, this song by La Um, It says, it it kind of reminds me of this uh, idea. It says, with every breath I take, with every heartbeat, sunrise and moonlights in the dark street, every glance, every dance, every note of a song, it is all a gift undeserved that I shouldn't have known. Every day I lie, every moment I covet, I'm deserving to die, I'm just earning your judgment. And it goes on, tomorrow's never promised, but it is, we swear, think we holding our own, We had just a fist full of air. God has never been obliged to give us a life. For if we fought for our rights, we'd be in hell tonight. Mere sinners owed nothing but a fierce hand. So every single breath that you take is God being patient with you. Every single moment now is God being patient with you. Every single good taste of good food is God being merciful and patient with you. Every laughter that you have is God being patient with you. Like I mentioned before, if we could project all your thoughts from this week everything that you've looked at, everything that you've done in this week, if we could project it on the screen, it would cause you, it would cause you to beg and cry for God's mercy. It would would cause you to beg and cry for God to not judge you and not to lay his judgment upon you. Here's the thing, though, guys. Here's the thing. You and I, we cannot pick and choose what we want God to bring judgment upon. We can't pick and choose, God, please bring your judgment on this, please stop this evil, please stop the people from suffering, but don't bring judgment against me. Many people, they'll look at the world and they'll shake their fists at God. Many people will look at what's happening in the world and they'll shake their fists at God and say, you're to blame for this. They'll shake their fists at God and say, you need to stop this. Stop the evil, why are you letting this happen? I thought you were a good and loving God. Why are you letting this suffering happen? But when it comes to the evil in our own lives, when it comes to the idols in our own lives, do we say, God, stop it? Do we say, please, judge me for that? No, we beg and we do the opposite. Suddenly, with the idols in our own lives, God is not too slow to execute judgment. If we want God to enact his justice and judgment on evil and suffering now, then you must do it for all evil, even in your own life. But God is patient. He's patient. Every single moment, he's patient. He's patient with the sin. He's patient with our sin. And his heart is for, uh, is for to show mercy to us. And his heart is for us to call, is for us to, to call us back to repentance. To call us back and to, 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 to chase after him. But even, even as we see, we don't actually see this in, in 2 Kings, um, but we see this uh, in, in 2 Chronicles of Manasseh. He actually repents. He actually repents of what he's done. But it's a little too late. It's too little too late. God's wrath still comes for his people. God's judgment is still coming for his people. So that leads us to our last point. Leads us to our last point that God delivers us from sin through a better king. And so if we look at Josiah, Josiah, the better king. Josiah, in 2 Kings verse 23, we see he is in contrast to to Manasseh. Right, Everything that Manasseh did to undo his father's work, Josiah undoes his grandfather's work. And so back and forth between these three generations of tearing down idols, tearing down Asherah, and then also rebuilding that, rebuilding idols and restoring the idols, restoring idol worship, and then, and then, and then Josiah kind of taking that down, restoring God's worship, restoring the land to bring him back to, bring him back to God. You know, in verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 24, Josiah, he puts away the mediums and the necromancers in the house of God. So Josiah, Josiah, he has spoken so highly here. He has spoken of so highly. He burns down the altars and the idols. He burns down the asherah. He restores Passover. He restores God's word in the land instead of directly rebelling against it. You know, verse 20, uh, chapter 23, verse 25, if you look at it, it says, Before him there was no king like him. Who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, heart, all of his soul, with all of his might. Does that sound familiar? According to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So Josiah, the best king there was, not before or after. Not even his grandfather. But here's the kicker in the story. As good of a king that Josiah was, he was unable to turn away God's judgment that was headed for them. Verse 26, verse 26 it says, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, which by his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. This shows again this bell curve of good and evil, it doesn't exist. This bell curve of good and bad people doesn't exist. We don't have Josiah all the way over here with Billy Graham and and, and, and Jim Elliot and all these people and, you know, Manasseh's over here. No, no. Both sides, both sides belong on the side of sinful people. Everyone receives this judgment. As good of a king Josiah was, he was not good enough. And as a just God, and as a good God, he is unable to to relent of his wrath uh, because of a sinner like Josiah. It would be unfair of God to overlook even the sins of this really, really, really good king. It would be unfair of God to go, all right, I'm turning my wrath away because this king was really good. I think it's Matt Chandler who says something like this, though. The cry of God's people... The cry of God's people is for God to be unfair to us. The cry of God's people for us as God's people is for God to give us what we don't deserve. It's for us to go, don't give us what we deserve, God. Be unfair to us, God. Don't show us your wrath, God. Have mercy on us. Be unfair to us. That's the cry of God's people. The need for theodicy is there's a belief that God is unfair. We, have to, we feel like we have to justify God's action because we believe God is unfair, God is, un, is, is not good, that God is unfair, that the wicked, the wicked prosper, the evil is overlooked, and evil is not dealt with. Suffering happens to good people. It's not fair, God. It's not fair. It's this idea there's there's God's not fair in his dealing with what's going on in the world. Well, the reality is, here's the thing, the reality is God is unfair. The reality is God is unfair. I want you to hear this. Just not in the way that the world sees he's unfair. God is unfair because he was unfair to his son. He was unfair to his son who did not deserve one ounce of wrath. He was unfair to his son who did not deserve any any wrath that was meant for him, but on the cross received received all wrath that was meant for those who who would come to him. On the cross, on the cross, the son who, who, who received the wrath that was meant for sinners, this is the better king. This is the better king that will turn away God's wrath. This is the better king that was able to turn away God's wrath, uh, turn away and actually, if anything, not just turn away God's wrath from us, but turn God's wrath towards himself. Talk about God being unfair. Talk about God being unfair. Be unfair to us. Show us mercy. Turn your wrath away from us, God, please. You want to see a good God, you look towards the cross. You want to see a good and unfair God, look towards the cross. Look towards the cross of Jesus Christ where the full wrath of God was placed on all, uh, for all those who will come to know Jesus Christ. And I've heard it said before, I've heard it said before, there's no need to defend God. It's just like in the same way, there's no need to defend a lion. You just let the lion out of his cage and it will defend for itself. In the same way, I, I do think it's silly that we think that, I think it's silly that to think that we're actually defending God. What God needs to do, he just needs to reveal what he's done for sinners. He just needs to reveal what he's done for sinners. How he's placed his wrath on his one and only and begotten son. And that gospel truth will defend itself. That gospel truth will see and show that God is good. That God is loving. That God is kind and generous towards you. And that he hasn't left you alone in your suffering. He hasn't left us alone in our suffering. He hasn't left us alone to deal with suffering and evil in the world. The gospel itself will defend and show that God is not done with evil. God is not done with suffering. God is not done with everything going on in the world. We just need to look towards him and what he's done on the cross in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you today knowing full well that the wrath of God that was meant for us as sinners has been placed onto you. And so we thank you that we can come before you, come before the throne of God and and beg for mercy, and beg for grace, and beg and ask for forgiveness, And the great thing about that is that we can receive it. We have, but your people have received the mercy. Your people have received the grace. Your people have received forgiveness. So God, we thank you for what you have done through the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your kindness. Pray this in Jesus' name.